This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. What I hope this sharing will do is to develop a sense of appreciation in all of us who may not understand this illness well and the journey that caregivers go through. A journey like no other, filled with uncertainties, daunting challenges, but also a journey of growth and love. Lots and lots of love. Welcome to Health and Living with me, Xiao Yik, for another episode of Because Feelings Matter. That's Dr. Hariati Sharima Abdul-Majid, a caregiver to her late father who had Alzheimer's, vascular dementia and Parkinson's disease. Hi, um, I'm Hariati. Uh, my colleagues call me Hari or Dr. Hari. I'm a psychologist by training um, in the area of health and illness. I support patients diagnosed with chronic medical conditions. Um, I was an academician at a local university for more than 20 years until I opted for um, retirement in 2016 to care for my dad, or as we formally call him, La Bapa, who was living with Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, and Parkinson's disease. Um, we have now lived without him for six months um, because he had returned to the creator in August of last year. As a psychologist, Dr. Hariati was the one that people turned to when they were struggling with mental health issues due to other health problems. But then her own father was diagnosed with several neurodegenerative conditions. I think we began noticing um, the changes in his mental capacity, ability to recall um, in 2015. Um, as family members, I think all of us attributed this to part of the normal aging process, right? Um, and as a psychology lecturer, though, I had in my heart and in my mind um, that after a while that this inability to recall um, was not normal anymore, especially when he was unable to tra- trace his tracks when he forgot where he placed his watch and wallet and he'd get very upset, you know. Uh, Previously, when he would misplace them, he would actually say, oh, I was here, I was here, and now I can find it. Uh, But then when he began to say, I don't know, I don't know, you know, you took it. So when I started reading, I I was teaching physiological psychology, so I kind of like was familiar with with some of the signs, early warning signs. Um, So, and then when I real, when, when he was driving, I would insist on, being next to him, you know, when, um, so when he began to show that he's unable to recall where he was going, uh, it was very difficult, you know, because this was a man who was, who took care of us, you know, who, who knew the roads in the U.S., you know, we was able to follow maps without waste. Uh, then I was able to drive the mobile home, um, you know, on his own. So it was actually initially difficult for us, but I think my brothers and I, because we, we, we read a lot as well. So we, knew then that we had to ask doctors for advice. Often the role of a caregiver begins even before a disease has been diagnosed. The caregivers are the ones who recognise signs that something isn't right. And they're also the ones with the difficult task of coaxing and convincing their loved one to see a doctor. Trust is super important in in taking care of patients developing Um, Alzheimer's and dementia, and also making them feel safe in whatever that they do. Um, You know, part of the illness is developing delusions, 
um, thinking that people are trying to get them. You know, uh, people out there trying to get them to do something to them. He initially refused to go and see the doctor, you know, because he says, I'm fine. Um, I just forgot. Um, you know, you go and see the doctor. Um, so I have a very unique relationship with my dad. Um, I've always been around. I mean, I you know, even before his illness, I'd come back every weekend, um, you know, go out together and, and do stuff together. Um, so I think the trust was there already. Um, what I learned later was the communication style. You know, instead of asking him to go, you know, or telling him to go, I would actually sit down with him and ask him, you know, but, um, this month is your visit to this doctor. There are some doctors that he likes, you know, uh, and I would actually tell him that we are meeting this doctor. Uh, so he is going to actually, um, you know, give you the medications that he used to give you. So this is what happened. So he, um, by associating things or people that he already trusts, makes it easier for him to agree to do the things that, um, that he needs to do. Yeah. So if you have a stranger telling him, um, then it will be difficult. I remember once I brought him to Clinic Kesehatan Sikamat uh, for his checkup. You know, he was very resistant. He did not want to go to the hospital, um, to the clinic. Um, so it was actually pretty difficult, you know. Um, I was worried about what he might do. But there was this one man, the medical assistant, who actually said, Ah, Pakci! Uh, you know, and immediately he relented. Immediately he his resistance just fell away. He, he was able to, uh, willing to uh, see the doctor after that. So, yeah, so we had to introduce familiar faces, familiar voices to him, uh, people he did not see as threats or people he did not perceive as threats to him because he was not, you know, in his mind, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of things going on in his mind. He wasn't sure what was happening. Um, so we needed to introduce things that were familiar to him. And when we finally got the diagnosis, it was my brother who was living in Johor. Um, his relationship with my brother was also a special one. And it took my brother to convince him to go for that proper diagnosis. So it was me and my and that particular brother who was living in Johor. So we had to actually bring him to Johor to see a doctor in Johor Bahru with my brother around for him to feel safe to go for the mental, mini mental state examination for his assessments. And after we received the diagnosis of vascular dementia, Alzheimer's, um, we knew that we had to prepare ourselves mentally and physically to care for him. The decision to take on the role as a primary caregiver for her father and eventually her mother who had a stroke was a no-brainer, considering how close-knit the family was and her special relationship with her parents. I'm the only daughter in a family of five children, um, the only one who followed my parents' footsteps as teachers. Um, I went to academic. My father was a lecturer at a local university. Uh, my mom was a teacher in various schools. Um, we are a very close-knit family. My parents were very involved and engaged in our life. My childhood was an awesome one. Um, when we were little, my parents would make sure that we spent as much leisure time together. They were very busy as, as, as professionals. We lived in Malacca when we were younger, but my dad would make sure that we spend time during the weekends in the parks or even go to KL, visit my uncle in Ipoh, um, spend as much time as possible doing things that bonded us as family. And I think the best memories I had was actually when we were in the U.S. 
as a young person, my, my dad, who was offered to do his postgraduate studies, um, had brought all of us there, uh, all five children, his wife, of course. Um, when people advised against it, he said that, you know, my family comes first. I want them to be with me. We may not be living a, you know, financially rich life, but I want them to be able to experience uh, living away from Malaysia. So that was um, very, very meaningful for me. So we were not rich. My mom wanted to cook for the students there um, to earn money. My dad would lock his bags, not just uh, filled with books, but also filled with nasi campur uh, to, to sell to students. Um, you know, and, and this experience taught me that my parents were willing to do a lot of things for us. Um, they were willing to go beyond their roles, um, you know, taking up different roles to raise us, to, to let us experience different things. So with the money that they earned, they actually brought us to places as far away as Canada, to Florida, you know, and, and to live uh, as frugally as possible. You know, we lived in mobile homes, we lived in camps, but the experiences were very enriching. I think the time we spent with my parents there helped me to see my parents, my dad, my mom, um, as not just parents, but as people who are hardworking, who are dedicated, um, who love their family. But she also had to come to terms with the fact that the tables had turned in the parent-child dynamic. Growing up and even as a working adult, her father had been the guiding force in her life, ever present, ever involved, ever active. My mom was a strict one. She was a just retired now, a disciplinary teacher. My dad, um, you know, as, as I grew older, my relationship with my dad became stronger, became a different one. Uh, he was not just my dad, he was my mentor, advisor, my biggest supporter, cheerleader. Um, you know, I would actually turn to him for advice on my studies, uh, on my work. My profession as a lecturer was a result of his encouragement. Um, I was also, I'm, I'm still a volunteer with Mercy Malaysia. Um, 10 years I spent as an ex-co, I volunteered for 20 years and I've been to many missions. Just to share with you um, the relationship that I had with my dad, he is my biggest supporter when it comes to going to be deployed to different difficult missions. You know, my mom would say, no, you can't go. My dad would say, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll settle mom. You know, I'll, I'll let her know. So um, he was not strict, but he was um, authoritative. He was firm. He was assertive, but he was also empathic. And he, he encouraged me to experience things that I think many um, parents may not necessarily be comfortable to do so. Yeah, so that's the kind of relationship that I have with my dad. My mom is a strict one. My dad is the one that you turn to to coax my mom to allow us to do things that she would not allow us to do. Um, his, his parenting style, his discipline style was, was for me, what shaped me to see what, what relationship, parental relationships should be like, parenting should be like, you know, because every time that I would make an error, uh, he would actually call me to the side, would sit down with me and he would ask me, you know, do you know what mistake you made? Do you know what error you made? Do you know what made Mark cry? So he would actually ask me for my views until I understand the reasons why um, I, I should not be doing what I, what I did. So that's how he parented us. The way he was as a parent, he would communicate, he would, um, he would, he would not just admonish and, and advise us, but he would actually sit down with us and, and ask for our views um, as for our ability to understand the repercussions, 
In the same way, Dr. Hariati approached caregiving as a partnership between herself and her father. But it's not possible to expect caregivers to step into that role seamlessly. Everyone will view this identity differently and will go through the process of having to accept the changes in their loved one and what roles they can play. The process of accepting this diagnosis was different for each and every one of us. Um, you know, I think I accepted it quite quickly. Um, some of my brothers were not able to accept it as quickly. Um, you know, it's not easy for a son to see their hero, you know, suddenly losing the ability to do things that they used to do together. And I think the last one to accept was, was my mom. That was quite, um, that was a stress sore itself um, because they were soulmates. My mom and my dad were soulmates. They they were the best friends. People always say in, in Bahasa Malaysia, they're like belangkas, you know, always together. If they went to the uh, supermarket or the market, one was, eh, mana kepala? Oh, mana eko? You know, if they're not together. So that's how they were. So it was not easy for my, my mom to, to accept my dad's condition. And I think there was still, and then there is still, but there was stronger stigma uh, and taboo attached to at least in the Malay community, I think, are talking about nyanyo, you know? So it was not easy to talk when people referred my dad as, as being nyanyo, although he was a university professor before that. So it's a, it's a totally different identity now from someone who was, you know, who, who was excellent, who, who, who was passionate in education and now unable to read, unable to right? I mean, you know, and later unable to recall our names, although he recognized our faces, unable to um, recall or maybe verbalize our names. Yeah. You know, so everyone had had a role to play. One of my brother's role was to, to, to comfort my mom. So he was very close to my, he's very close to my mom. So everything that, you know, if something happens, we direct him to take care of mom, you know, um, and another one would be financially supporting us. Um, another one would be physically supporting us. So different siblings play different roles. After the break, should caregivers be expected to stay stoic all the time? And is it bad to admit that you're struggling and need help? This is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. Stay tuned to Health & Living, BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome back to Health and Living. I'm T. Xiao Ik, bringing you another episode of Because Feelings Matter. In the spotlight today, the emotional and mental journey of a caregiver. From the time that their loved one begins showing signs of their disease and all the way throughout the days, weeks and months as the disease progresses. For Dr. Hariati Sharima Abdul-Majid, being a caregiver to her late father who had Alzheimer's, vascular dementia and Parkinson's disease meant that she was her father's daily companion. Alzheimer's, dementia, they are neurodegenerative illnesses. Yeah. So in other words, it progresses. For some people, it progresses very quickly, some very slowly. For my dad, it was actually quite quickly. Um, in the initial stages of his illness, my caregiving role was mostly to keep him company, uh, to keep him occupied, to keep him safe because he 
would be wandering, you know, wandering, walking around, wanting to leave home, wanting to be somewhere. So in the initial stages of the illness, um, he would wake me up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, would say, I want to go out. Uh, and, you know, and wake up and I say, but it's not time yet to go out. The sun is not out yet. Uh, so shall we wait for the sun to come out? I'll pray and we would go out. Um, so that's the routine every single day after uh, after Fajr prayers, after Subo prayers, I would then bring him out. Um, we would drive and he, he would direct me where to go. Um, so he would always direct me to either Jalebu or Kuala Pilah. At 6.30 in the morning, I would drive him up to Kuala Pila and Jalebu. Initially, it was quite stressful because I didn't know what to expect. And then I realized the scenery around that area is beautiful and it's quiet, it's cool. So it actually became therapeutic for me. And then I said I needed to also introduce a constructive distraction for him. I remember him liking arts. So because he was unable to read anymore, uh, we introduced him coloring activities and he enjoyed that. Initially, he would color one page and I would color the ne next to him, you know, we'd color together. Later, he, after he gained the confidence, he says, no, I want to color myself, you know. So we spent many months coloring. So that was the activity that we occupied him. Um, after he was not able to take care of himself anymore, uh, he forgot where the bathroom was. He forgot how to use the washroom. Um, my mom was the one. Uh, he trusted to be in the washroom with him. You know, initially he did not allow anyone else to be in the washroom with him except my mom. Um, and then um, we knew that my, you know, it was going to take a toll on my mom, um, but we had to find someone whom he would be willing to. So it was my brother from Johor, you know. So he would be coming back every single weekend um, to make sure that my, my mom is relieved of that duty. And then my mom had stroke. Um, so that was difficult. Um, but just before she had um, her, it was a minor stroke, but it was still stroke. Um, somehow, because I was there all the time, I guess, when whenever my brother bathed him, I think my dad developed this, this picture that I was not a threat to him, that, that he should not be ashamed. If I took over the role of my mom because I told him that, you know, Pa, why is not well? You know, is it okay if I took over once a while? So it was introduced slowly. Her father's dignity and personhood was important, that he not be seen as a helpless patient, but rather someone who needed more support in daily activities due to his illness. One of the things that all of us will always remember about my dad is his um, kindness, yeah, is his compassion, his smile, you know, in, in once he developed his illness, as, as the illness progressed, um, he was not able to verbalize. He, he lost his ability to communicate. Um, but he would actually still communicate with us through nonverbal gestures, through his smile, through his touch. Although there were times when he would, you know, because of the illness, he would show agitation, irritation, anger, and sometimes even aggression. But at his quiet times, um, he would actually still be the person we want to sit with and, and hug and, and talk to and, and, and just enjoy his smile, you know. Um, but before that, you know, he 
um, just the small things uh, when he began to lose his mental capacity, um, how we know that he was still who he was, yeah? By expressing his um, joy at seeing his grandchildren, people he adored, um, by, by being kind to cats, you know, he loved cats, yeah? Uh, we have many cats. Um, so those were glimpses uh, of him that he was able to show us, or we were able to observe in him. Um, he valued his role as a Muslim. Yeah, he's a devout Muslim. Um, he was an imam, you know, when, when he was well. Um, you know, so that's one of the things we notice until the end, that his passion or his desire to still be connected to the Quran, you know, uh, was still there. So even if he was not able to communicate, but he would actually be um, assuaged, his, his, his irritation would actually go away uh, when the Quran is read to him. Um, and he would give us a smile after uh, we completed our readings for him. So yeah, those those were the things that would show us that he's still our dad. You know, I mean, he's he's our dad. Earlier, Dr. Hariati referred to the importance of making her father feel safe when he was going for his medical checkups and tests. I asked her why that sense of safety matters for people with dementia. It's not just a physical safety, it's a psychological safety, you know, to actually, um, you know, so for instance, someone comes, and one of the things I often educate people is when they come and visit my dad, never ask, ingat tak saya, remember me? Because what they do is like, why not? Why am I not remembering you? You know, am I supposed to remember you? So instead, come in and say, Assalamualaikum Pakcik, Pakcik Majid, ni yati ni, nak nak jumpa. So you actually just introduce yourself uh, and make them feel that they remember you. You know, make them feel that they recognize who you are. So there are many um, techniques that actually help um, for him to feel safe. So, you know, when, when I remember one of the challenges I faced was, um, you know, when he was unable to care for himself anymore, you know, in the bathroom. Um, I remember initially I would just bathe him, you know, using the gayungkan and, and put water on his head and he would grow very agitated. And then I realized, of course, he would actually be, he would be afraid because he did not know what was put on top of him. You know, he did not have control over that. So I learned the techniques of washing his feet first, you know, would actually say so that he can see it. I said, Pa, I will wash your feet first, okay? And then I will wash this part. And then I'll wash this part. And I asked him to hold the, you know, to touch the water so that he does not feel it's too cold or it's too hot because his reactions, his you know, immediate reactions would indicate to me whether he would feel safe and comfortable. Although we may not think he understood where he was going, but just telling him allows him to make that decision whether I want to go or not, whether I want to do this or not. A lot of the struggles faced by caregivers come down to the fact that they feel very lost and helpless. All too often, their loved ones are given a diagnosis and then discharged from the hospital with very little information and avenues for support. Um, that, that is definitely a real challenge. Um, resources in Malaysia are very limited, and, and I actually turned to um, resources available on the website a lot um, from different national organizations on Alzheimer's, 
Um, I joined a support group, like I said earlier. So that helped a lot. Uh, but there were many times when I did feel at loss because joining support groups does not necessarily mean that you are taught um, real life skills, the techniques, the specific techniques um, of, of taking care of dad. Um, so there were several occasions when it was trial and error, when I wanted to make sure that my dad brushed his teeth uh, or I brushed his teeth, you know, um, and later I had to brush his teeth. Um, how do I prevent him from, how do I stop him from um, biting into the toothbrush and not wanting to let it go as a result, uh, his mouth would bleed and things like that. So that that was scary, um, scary for, I think, for him and as well as for me, because I didn't know, uh, you know, whether that would actually uh, result in uh, further health complications later, infections and things like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I wish there were a lot more information available and accessible um, for caregivers here in Malaysia, particularly, um, you know, so so in the initial part, I think uh, I did feel alone. Um, I think I did not turn to many people. There were many people with similar experiences, but many of them, and, and I don't mean this as looking down at their own caregiving journey, but many of them would, would just take care of the medical needs, you know, like as long as they sleep, as long as they eat, you know, taking their medication and that's fine. Um, but I wanted more because I, I knew that I was taking care of my dad who's living with Alzheimer's. So that, that mindset um, demanded a little bit more from me. So yeah, so there was a lot of trials and errors. You know, say for instance, when I would bring my dad to the hospital uh, to see the doctor for his follow-up appointments and to get his medication, um, I think a lot of people would just leave their parents on, on the chair and take the medication for them. But I would actually uh, encourage my dad to come along and say, okay, speak to my dad. But I would be the one listening to what needs to be done so that he, he knew he had a sense of control and dignity. But I think the knowledge in psychology, the skills I had learned as a psychologist have helped me tremendously. So that I think is an advantage for me. But the daily challenges can be unpredictable. And just when you think you've settled into a pattern, the progression of the disease throws up new issues and the cycle starts all over again. I had to turn to a support group because it was also taking a toll on me physically and psychologically because the behaviours changed. Initially, he was willing to be bathed. He was willing to brush his teeth. And then he, at the time that I took over, he was not willing to. You know, he refused to. Um, I had to turn to support group. I turned to support group in the UK then um, because I had in my mind, I needed the anonymity. In, in Malay, it's called, I, I did not want to membuka aib lah uh, because there were some behaviors that were not easy to talk about, you know. So, but after I turned to the um, support group, I was happy because I learned new skills. I had different ideas on how to take care of him um, so that helped a lot. So that helped a lot. And, and I realized um, that, you know, regardless of where you are in this world, when you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, this neurodegenerative disease, there are a lot of similarities uh, in the peculiarities that the patients experience and the caregivers experience. 
And then my, my dad had his first seizure. Um, he became bedridden. So that was another challenge um, that I may not have prepared myself for. Uh, at this time, you know, we, we tried to get some care aids, some nurses to come, but not many people were willing to. But then I knew that I needed to. I needed to get someone to help me out because physically I needed to you know, lift him. Physically, I need to move him. Um, Alhamdulillah, by God's grace, a nurse had just left his job and was searching for a new job. So he was able to help me take care of my dad when it comes to the physical stuff. I learned to, um, I learned to wash my dad in his bed. That was actually a very good learning curve for me. Um, it taught me how to be patient. Uh, that's a very important thing, you know, um, uh, because he showed a lot of resistance initially. You know, if, if we moved him differently, he would resist. He would not want to move. Um, but that's, again, it's all his illness. And it, it, it's his fear of, of getting hurt or his pain because he's not able to express pain. Um, so if he resisted, we know that it's because he's not, not comfortable. He's worried. He's in pain. And then his last second seizure, last seizure before he passed away, came in December 2021, uh, when he became fully bedridden, fully unable to move. He was on nasogastric tube feeding already. That I think was also also provided a different kind of challenge because um, we also had to deal with our anticipatory grief, knowing that you know um, the illness was coming to a, a later stage. Um, and it was not easy for my mom to, to accept that he was on nasogastric tube um, because it was an indication. Yeah, so the, the worries were different now. The worries were his pneumonia. The worries were infections. The worries were bed sores. So at different stages of his illness, posed different kind of challenges, posed different kind of demands, different kinds of demands, uh, physically and mentally. No doubt, Dr. Hariati had an advantage being a psychologist who already had the awareness and skills needed to cope with these challenges. But she's also human. You know, I'm a psychologist. You know, there's this, this thing in my mind and people always say that I'm, I'm very independent. I'm very resilient. I'm able to do a lot of things for myself. I've been to war-torn countries, you know. Um, so there was this cognitive bias in me. Um, that I cannot or should not be seeking help or thinking that people think that I, you know, if I sought help, that I may be weak. You know, that actually was a, quite a stressful thing for me. You know, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I was a, here I was as a psychologist thinking that, um, you know, I was able to manage my own thoughts, but I didn't realize that I had that bias, which actually hindered me from seeking help away from my family members, you know. But one day, after a talk on exactly that topic, I realized that I had a cognitive bias or perceptual distortion called mind reading. I, I read people's mind thinking that they think that I may not be able to do this. Once I was able to actually catch that thought, it was actually quite liberating. I was able to um, seek uh, the right kind of support, the right kind of help, uh, in terms, especially in terms of inf informational help. Um, Emotional help, I was getting it from my uh, close-knit group of friends, psychologists who made up of psycho clinical psychologists and counsellors. So they've been helping me, you know, just providing me the kind of support that I needed. 
Many caregivers struggle with guilt. They believe that they are not supposed to express how tired they are, how frustrated they feel, or to ask for help. All of this, combined with the constant vigilance and anxiety of caring for their loved one, takes a toll on their mental health. And if a psychologist can say that even she, a professional, needs someone else to help her with emotional ups and downs, what more the rest of us? Mental health support, you know, a lot of people expect only people with mental health disorders to seek support. Um, But everyday caregivers, people who experience stressful situations, this, this support should also be made available to them. This mindset that, oh, you are not, kenapa not stress, you know, aren't you, you're doing a noble job, so you should think positively, taking care of your parents is an honor. It is. But we also have limitations in our resources, physical, mental, emotional resources. Um, and, and, you know, speaking to someone without judgment, uh, who don't judge, giving us tools, providing an ear, providing us support, uh, providing us that safe space to talk about the challenges without being judged is, is super important, you know. And I know that there are many caregivers out there who have developed depression, you know, uh, and anxiety. But with more people taking up caregiving roles due to the rise in non-communicable diseases and our ageing population, will there be enough mental health support available for everyone? You know, when you look at mental health and psychosocial support, it, it's a pyramid, right? Uh, at the top of the pyramid, you know, are the psychiatrists, the clinical psychologists. But at the bottom part of the pyramid are the community members or specific members of the community. Um, and, and everyone, and, and with Mercy Malaysia, we've been training people from different parts of the world in Malaysia, different levels of the community, uh, a skill called psychological first aid. You know, it's, it's a basic skill um, to help support people who are facing adversities, yeah? Um, in this case, emergency situations. But some of the skills can actually be uh, the helping skills, the listening skills, the supporting skills. Everyone can learn. So PFA is a skill that everyone can learn and should learn. Listening skills is a, a, a skill that everyone can and should learn. So I think that is something that is not necessarily yet witnessed here in Malaysia because people still think that helping professionals are the psychologists and counselors only. You know, for me, I'm now volunteer with Hospice Negris Milan. So I just come back from a couple of home visits. Um, and one of the things I realized was that where is the community in this? Uh, where are the community members? Where are the community leaders? The AJK Mustay or AJK Lukuntanga or AJK whatever. You know, there's so many AJKs here. Um, and, and if they are given training, if they are giving empowering, you know, empowering skills, skills that they can use themselves and for the community. I think many of the issues that people who are bedridden, who are being left alone at home, the caregivers who have to balance different tasks and responsibilities, that can be taken away a little bit, you know. It, it, so, so I think that's missing in the community level here in Malaysia because people expect, oh, you need emotional support, talk to psychologists, talk to counsellors. Yes, we play that role. But I think community members can feel empowered if they're also given that role, uh, if they're also given the skills and knowledge, you know, so they can come in and not just come and visit and bring fruits. They can come and visit and sit down and identify the kind of support that is needed by the patients and the caregivers. 
So, so that's something that I think uh, can be done. One more thing, one area that I think is also we need to talk about is workplace policies. Workplace policies should include consideration for caregivers. Um, workplace cannot or should not, as much as possible, avoid putting the person who is about to be the primary caregiver to make the decision whether to leave work or to take care, you know, having to make that decision is not easy. I mean, I love the work that I did as a lecturer. I, I love my work as a teacher. Um, and and it, you know, it pained me to put in my resignation. Um, but of course, you know, there's no contest. Uh, there's no contest in, in whether I should stay at work or take care of my dad. You know, my dad, of course, is, is my priority, my number one. But if other means were made accessible, you know, that I did not have to resign, then it would have been, you know, good for all quarters. They did not have to lose a manpower. Um, I would still have some kind of income, you know, to be financially stable. My dad would still be taken care of. So I think I think policies like that is, it should not be an all or none. Now the pandemic showed us that working from home can be done. So that option can or should be made available to people who are deciding to be primary caregivers for their family, for their loved ones. It's been a long journey for Dr. Hariati, and she still continues to care for her mother today. At the start of this episode, she talked about how feelings matter. The feelings of the individual receiving care and the feelings of the caregiver I ask her how she feels about her own sense of self and how she maintains her identity without losing herself in the daily struggles of a caregiver. Um, I think that's a very important question. Um, You know, being a caregiver, you have different hats that you put on your head, different roles that you play. Um, But I'll be very frank with you. One thing that has kept me grounded, um, one thing that has kept me grateful for the experience um, is my role as a Muslim. Yeah. My relationship with God has played and continues to play a huge role in my life in how I see um, myself, my identity, my uh, responsibilities, um, the meaning uh, of why I'm here in this world. I know it's very cliche, but it is, it is. Um, and, and turning to him has been the biggest source of strength for me. Um, you know, people often talk about being grateful. So gratitude to him, uh, to God, is powerful because it allows you to take time. It makes you take the time away from what you go through reflect on the things that have happened, you know, and, and look back at the resources, the experiences, the journey that you've gone through, the strengths uh, that you have within you. Um, you know, I've, I've gone through different things in my life before I became a caregiver. And I believe that God tested me with all those um, tests or challenges to prepare me to become a better caregiver. Those experiences, I think, have helped me to become the caregiver that I was and hopefully continue to be for my mom. But along the way, you recognize that emotional distress, psychological turmoil that you go through are part and parcel of what helps you 
to grow because along the way you reflect, you modify, you adopt new things, adopt new ways of looking at the world. You you learn how to prioritize things. Will things get better after this? I mean, you know, taking care of my, my mom is a whole different ballgame. Um, but it's also giving me a different insight into uh, what caregiving can be for different types of um, situations, for different uh, people that we care for. I've been speaking to Dr. Hariati Sharima Abdul-Majid on her caregiving journey and the importance of addressing the mental well-being of caregivers. This is Because Feelings Matter, a series featuring personal stories of people and their mental health issues. If you missed any part of the show or if you'd like to listen to previous podcasts, you can search for it on bfm.my or on our BFM app. You've been listening to Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.